Hey, everybody, welcome to another edition of The Letter Side of Serial Killers here on the Boom Bastic Media Network. I am your host, as always, Keith Revere, and I am glad you joined us tonight uh, and also excited. Um, we have another author um, who is friends, an, an unlikely friendship. Well, we'll see if it's actually a friendship because uh, let's just say that got off to a little bit of a rocky start, <laughs> to say the least. Um, you probably heard of uh, the Boston mobster, Whitey Bulger. Well, one of his, I guess, hit men, what are you going to call it, right-hand man, uh, Kevin Weeks, uh, was the subject of one of her books called Brutal, the untold story of my life inside Whitey Bulger's Irish mob. And a few other books we're going to be getting into. Um, but she's like an accomplished, award-winning author, the, Ken- the Onassis women um, that she won awards for. And to go from the, <laughs> that book that got such such high acclaim, prestige, so to speak, to talking about it and writing about a gangster. <laughs> we'll see. You know, this is the lighter side of serial killer. Is he a serial killer? Um, just a regular killer? <laughs> a gangster? Which you know they're killers too. Uh, we're going to get into that. Um, but I, you know, when I started really reaching out to these uh, types of people uh, to get to know them a little bit, um, I was fascinated with Whitey Bulger. I uh, never got to talk to him. Um, but Kevin Weeks, who is out, you know, he's out of prison now due to a deal that he struck. I wanted to reach out to him. I wanted to talk to him. Um, I already had a book out. And he did like a couple, I want to say, secret signings because it's still kind of in hiding a, a little bit, a little bit not. And, um, and I felt like maybe if I can track down the author, I can get a, you know, at least get a signed copy and maybe start breaking the ice to build a relationship. So I, I've never met him, but um, I got a hold of Phyllis and she was kind enough to um, reach out to Kevin for me. And I gave me a signed book, which is great. Um, even his wife, his wife has written a book too. I got her get a signed copy of that. So that's about the closest that I got to, uh, uh, to meeting or to talking to Kevin Weeks. Um, but I found the book so fascinating. Um, and just like the unlikely pairing <laughs> of these two with this book. I'm like, I had to have her on. It took a little convincing. <laughs> She's obviously like, your podcast is called The Lighter Side of Serial Killers? I don't know if I really will fit into that. Um, but I, I want to explain what am I really about. Um, you know, the purpose behind all of what I do, it is really about, you know, positivity um, and um, prison rehabilitation and so forth. Um, but she agreed. And I was really happy. And, and at the end, she, she, was, she told me she really enjoyed the interview. It wasn't what she was expected. I said it took, it took a little while to <laughs> talk her into coming to the podcast. Um, so I hope you enjoy it. And if you don't know already, if you follow me on social media, you know I started a new um, a pod, a video blog, a video blog, a video podcast. Uh, on YouTube, the same name. If I look under Keith Revere and Blighter Side of Sierra Colors. Um, uploaded three videos so far. We have much more to come to um, with all the uh, attention I'm getting on on media, uh, the news and Inside Edition and Nancy Grace. Uh, let me strike while the iron's hard, so to speak, because I've been wanting to do a video podcast for a while. Um, I had Dana Gray on already, uh, the pig lady, Susan Monica. Uh, I re-uploaded a video I did on TikTok a while ago, interview with the vampire Paris Nico Clue. Kind of gave a little updated since I got kind of Bambi from TikTok. Uh, but I still had this response to some questions I asked. We did a bunch of three-minute segments because you're going to do three-minute videos on TikTok. I made it kind of like one long interview. I uh, reshot some things. I wanted to, you know, to uh, preserve that interview with Nico, and I thought it came out really good. So check that out too. 
Uh, i got a bunch more coming up. Pearl Fernandez, Luis Turpin, some of these video ones, and getting approved for San Quentin. So we have Wayne Adam Ford, Martin Kipp. We have a, a whole host of others. We're going to be doing uh, some video um, FaceTimes, if you will. Certain prison facilities allow that. So hop over to YouTube, give it a like, a subscribe, a share, all that good stuff. But tonight, the focus is on Phyllis. Uh, Phyllis Karras, and I think you're going to really enjoy this. I know it's a little bit, not I say different out of the norm. I, I do have authors on once in a while. Um, but man, this, that, the unlikely pairing is really what caught my attention. When I read the book, um, it was tremendous. It is a tremendous book. We're not going to be, a, we'll be talking about a few books that she has written, even the women of Southie, too. Um, but brutal, the untold story of my life inside Whitey Bulger's Irish mob. Let's hear from Phyllis. Thanks for taking a little time. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, oh, wonderful. It's funny. I was just talking to somebody this morning, getting coffee, uh, a couple, couple artists. One was a musician and one was a painter. And um, we we're talking about COVID and, and the lockdown and what, how it's, it's amazing how artists or creative people experience that lockdown. I want to get your thoughts on it too, where one used that time uh, creatively. Now the musician was, and he created songs and lyrics, but the artist, the painter, did nothing. It was like vegged out for, you know, for the year, almost of a lockdown. Uh, and I kind of did the same as Miss myself. And I was wondering, how did you uh, go through that? Was it a creative time for you for the lockdown? You just it, kinda... actually, it actually turned out to be Kevin and I were working on a book at the time. And um, we pretty much got through most of it in a couple of years. So um, it was, you know, for me, just I'm home. I write so much. Anyhow, I go in to teach a class. I come home and I write. So my life my classes I was still doing on Zoom, and I was able to write. Of course, there were lots of hard things about it. Not saying sure. Like time, but I was able to get constructive work done. But I know plenty of people who felt that their spirits were just wiped out. Yeah. No way that they were going to do anything creative, period. Exactly. It was definitely going to be a scary time for a lot of people. Um, right. When you started out, you know, looking at some of your background, where, I mean, you had a regular column for a while, you know, Boston Herald, you had books out and plenty of articles, and, and the Onassis Women book really, you know, catapulted you for sure, where I think you could have really done anything at that point, uh, writing-wise. What led you to write a book about a gangster, you know, brutal, you know, Kevin Weeks, yeah, you know, told a story? Uh, I think yeah. there was, a, was there a connection there, too? I think somewhat a connection with that book, or somebody in that book that led you to? Uh, actually, it was the Onassis Women, believe it or not. I had just finished that book which um, had completely changed my writing trajectory. I mean, I was writing young adult novels, doing newspaper pieces, and then suddenly, you know, it's uh, television interviews, 16, there were just so many different things that happened because of that book, plus, a, you know, a million-dollar advance. Mm -hmm. And um, so I've, everything had changed for me. And when I finished that book, um, you know, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, and my agent uh, in, the, in Boston called me into her office and said, I think I have something that you would enjoy, uh, you know, after the Onassis women. And um, I went into her office that day and met a man who was part of the Whitey Bulger uh, mob. And I had never heard of Whitey Bulger. I had no idea what the mob was. I taught at BU, which was maybe a 15-minute ride from South Boston, and yet couldn't have had more different worlds. <laughs> I knew nothing about South Boston, the South Boston Irish mob, Whitey Belcher. It was a whole new world. But my agent thought that since I had been writing about Aristotle Onassis and his marriage to Jackie, that that type of man might be a source that I might want to write about a different kind of men who had 
various elements of crime in them, but were also, you know, somehow rather um, worth writing about. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went into her office and she had um, a man there. His name was Eddie McKenzie. And he had submitted a um, proposal to her about his life. He was, um, as he explained, a leg breaker for uh, Whitey Bulger. Mm-hmm. And at that point to me, a leg breaker was probably uh, an orthopedic surgeon. I had no <laughs> idea that breaking legs yeah. in an operating room. And um, it, uh, he was something about him. I mean, honestly, Keith, the man, he presented such a, a strange image to me. He, I kept thinking afterwards, he looked almost like a hydrant. He was very wide. Wow. He, he never smiled. And I was not the least bit interested in his story of crime, but I was fascinated with his personal story. He had been in the foster care program since almost from the day he was born. He'd been a throwaway kid. He'd had a very sad youth, and yet Whitey Bulger had come in and brought him into another world. Mm. So the idea of writing not so much about the crime, but about this man interested me. But of course, there was no way to write Eddie McKenzie's story, which became a book called Street Soldier, without including constant references to the South Boston Irish mob in Whitey. So that's how it all started. Oh, wow. Now, from I think I heard you say in an interview before that um, your relationship with Kevin kind of was a little rocky oh, <laughs> to start, yeah. to say the least. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, that? Yeah, that's putting it very, very mildly. <laughs> I mean, when I finished Street Soldier, I thought, okay, that's it for crime. You know, I'm going to go back. I'm going to write young adult novels. I'll write another novel. You know, anything. I'm through. But then I got a very strange call from a lawyer who said he wanted to meet with me to discuss a proposal uh, in his office. And um, he would appreciate if I would come in and didn't tell me very much about it. But there was something about the way he presented it that seemed enticing. So I went and it turned out that these were lawyers that were representing uh, Kevin Weeks. And he was in prison at the time uh, for four murders. And they were trying to, he was, it was evident that he was going to be released at a certain time, that he was giving state's evidence that mm-hmm. he was going to be released. Yeah. And they wanted him when he came out, especially his brother, who had hired these lawyers, and his brother was highly educated, very successful, and um, wanted to know that his brother could come out of prison and not go back into the criminal world. Mm-hmm. So this deal was made that he would write a book, and the proceeds of this book about his life would that would go to the people who was about to sue him for oh, gotcha. okay. four murders. Yeah. And believe me, Keith, he did not want this deal at all. He <laughs> didn't want to talk about his life. And everything was done under the guise of darkness. Oh. His own family never knew what he did. His wow. son, until he was indicted and went to prison. They, you know, Whitey uh, Belger was Uncle Jimmy, who gave them the U.S. savings bonds for oh, all wow. the birth. Yeah. So he did. This was a very unhappy uh, co-author, and he was in prison at the time. And he especially didn't want to write the book with me because he hated Eddie McKenzie's story. Um, I think Eddie thought that Kevin was never coming out of prison and took a little liberty with some particular details. Oh, so he knew about the book. He knew about the. He knew about it because in his jail cell, he was watching uh, a book review, uh, a book program about books. There I was sitting on stage with Eddie. And And so when they mentioned mine, he said, I'm not writing the book. I'm definitely not writing the book. (laughs) But they decided that he didn't really have a choice. 
So very reluctantly, the two of us took on the project. Our phone calls while he was in prison were very short, very brief, and very unpleasant. And he came out of prison, and I met him less than 24 hours later at his brother's home. And um, I was very nervous about it. I remember my my kids telling me, he's going to be crazy. You're going to go meet this man. He's violent. He's a criminal. Don't go. And I had phones on, two different phones, so I could call them if there was a problem. And it turned out that, you know, he was very mild, very meek. He was adjusting to getting back to life after mm-hmm. five weeks behind prison. And uh, while he was not cooperative, he was not terribly angry. So we uh, began the program, and that's when the anger came out. I just had a horrible time writing it. He knew mm-hmm. that if he gave, if I wrote any mistakes, if I made any, any described, for instance, a crime taking place in 1970 instead of 1971 they would say that he had lied oh for legal reasons oh okay yeah that makes sense back in prison back in prison and he he just didn't want this but he really knew he had no choice so i he'd come into my classroom at bu sometimes we'd have interviews and they were awful most of the interviews were at night after he came home from work Um, he had a job working for the union and um you know, they were on the phone, and I remember my husband would be downstairs. I was up in my loft where I write, and he would hear the voices and hear Kevin's voice, and he'd come running up and telling me, you know, hang up. You know, this man is crazy. <laughs> and he'd get very angry, and then he would hang up. Oh. And luckily at the time, he was very involved with his future wife, uh, Anna Weeks, who uh, at the time was Anna Palozio. But Anna was very sympathetic to me and to the story, and she would shape him up so that he would call back and oh, say, okay, good. I didn't mean I was going to kill you. Um, um, oh, no. I take it back. Um, you know, let's get going. But you just don't understand what I'm saying half the time. And oh. he's right. I really didn't. Yeah. Um, so we, we, got, we struggled through it, and I mean struggled through it. And finally it was finished. We had an advance uh, from Collins. We knew it was going to be published. Didn't know how well it was going to do, and it came out. And I remember it was my birthday, and I got a phone call from Kevin wishing me a happy birthday, which I thought was pretty bizarre. And he says, um, I have a little gift for you. I said, yeah. And he said, yeah, we made the uh, New York Times bestseller list. I just got the call. Wow. Uh, first of all, it was it was a thrill, but it was also a whole different side of Kevin. Mm-hmm. The book was finished. We actually became friends, and I, I got to like the man, which I thought could never, ever oh, happen. Sure. <laughs> the, story, the story was that. I mean, there were murders and descriptions that left me with nightmares. And, oh, know, I can imagine. Yeah. But I, I had a sympathy for him. And yeah. his brother uh, wrote, Billy Weeks, wrote the foreword to the book. Mm-hmm. And the line that he used there really kind of got to me that whatever happened on the streets of Southie, were nothing in comparison to what happened inside their home. Their well, father. Yeah, that's what I was going to. That's what I was going to ask. Um, uh, now he was. It was a. He was a boxer, also, I believe. Like, and um, yep. and let alone, yep. you know, what uh, an abusive person can do. But if you're abusive, and you know how to fight, now yep. was it was it just towards Kevin the abuse, or was it towards the other siblings also? It was, it was definitely towards the other siblings. The um, older mm. one, um, Billy. It's remarkable. I mean, he came out of that house. He went to college. He went to Harvard on a full scholarship. And he was a boxer. And he boxed his way through Harvard, believe it or not. Oh. And a remarkable man. And the other one, Jack, was also went to Harvard and became very successful in politics. And Kevin had a, a, a scholarship to Harvard in his hands. Mm-hmm. 
didn't take it because his father said, don't be ridiculous. You know, work for, for Jimmy. You'll get much more money than your stupid brothers get. Wow. Oh, he did. And the sisters took a lot of abuse. The younger sister, Karen. It was a horrible, horrible home. It was a horrible man. And the mother was even worse because she knew what was going on. And she yeah. never tried to protect any of her six children. Wow. So, that's, that's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, because one part of one story, uh, if you want to share, I want to say, you know, too much of the individual stories, but one story, um, since we're talking about the father, I think that Kevin was playing when he was younger, like Cowboys and Indians or something. I guess he snuck up on his father mm-hmm. and his father, you know, you know, started a little bit, but then threw a bat at him. Yeah. And can you tell that story? What happened then at the doctor's office and the stitches? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember the exact details, but I do remember that his father was so abusive. Usually they avoided going to the doctor, but this one they had no choice. And, um, you know, he, his father brought him there, and Kevin was very mum about what had happened. And this happened many times. And actually, his brother, um, Billy, had written a book, which I would love to see published one of these days. It's not quite in that stage yet, about things that his father did, how he would tape his face and tape him to a chair and refuse to let him go to something from school. Or, or and It was just one incident after another. Oh, that's horrible. And, and the cruelty to the younger sister um, was just, uh, Karen was even worse. But Kevin got an awful lot of it too. I mean, he just, they never knew when the father was just going to come home and wild with rage oh. and, and physically demolish one of them. And the mother would, would encourage it, almost would tell him when he came home. Oh, this one did this. Oh, no. Horrible. Horrible. And he never abused her. Just gave her money for whatever she needed. And and I can't even say that the father was a drunk and try to excuse it, you know, for alcoholism. Mm -hmm. He wasn't. He was just a mean, mean man. He said even at that time with the doctors when he went and got the stitches from the baseball bat, I think Kevin Mm -hmm. like said, ow, or something, I was stitching up. And then he knocked out the doctor. You know, <laughs> and then oh, he took then he oh. took the kid for ice cream afterwards. It's like it's like oh. it's the mentality of. I mean, that's where you get to think. I mean, obviously, with my true crime podcast, and I've for mm-hmm. over 20, most of my adult life, I've been involved in prison outreach, rehabilitation, ministry. So I've been face to face with you know with serial killers, you know, violent offenders, my whole life. I'm, I'm kind of used to it now. And what I've seen is there's not a definite answer of why somebody turns out like that. Yes, there's psychopathy, there's brain abnormalities, but someone mm-hmm. can be have, have uh, brain abnormality and be a psychopath and live a productive life. You're not going to kill anybody, but it seems to be a mixture of childhood abuse and maybe a brain abnormality all mixed together. Do you mm-hmm. think that was something like, from what I understand that other kids turned out pretty well as Kevin is really the one that really took that, the left turn, so to speak. Do you think that was something that he was partially born with? I think one instance, he, at a young age, someone came at him with a knife and he shot him in the leg. And he's like, I felt nothing. And that was before the hundreds and hundreds to hundreds of fights. Do you think that was something you know, that maybe he was born with or you think it was a mixture of the know. abuse and everything together? I mean, I have talked to psychiatrists about that one trying to write the story. Was he a psychopath? And, there, and yet so many people that knew Kevin said that, that there was a kindness to him and he wasn't mm. really a brute. Um, he did what he was asked to do for Whitey Belcher. And if it meant beating somebody up, then he would do it. That was his job. He, he, he didn't think of it the way a normal person would think that you're inflicting pain, but he felt that they were all in the business. They never attacked an innocent person. This was somebody okay. that was coming after Jimmy or had come into the, uh, uh, the, the bar and was totally drunk and they had to get him out. So it's, he reasoned it that way. And wow. he also felt that when he got out of prison, that was done. Mm-hmm. That chapter of life was over. Every day, he said to himself when he got out of prison, today I will not commit a crime. 
And wow. Opportunities when he came out. Everybody, wow, you know, here's Kevin. I'll get him on this thing. I'll get him on this deal. And what a wonderful way to make some quick bucks. But he just kept that pledge, almost like an alcoholic, saying, I'll never have a drink again. Yeah. And he hasn't. And it's been, my God, the, the book was, what, in 1906. He's been out of prison mm-hmm. for many a year now, 15 years. And he hasn't committed a crime. He has a whole new life. Yeah. Uh, but it was an ugly, horrible life. And writing the story of it was not pleasant. Oh, and sure. I think for him, in a way, though, he got it out. I mean, talking about... You know, being with Stevie Flemmy hmm. and, and right there when Jimmy would kill somebody that was all tied up that they thought had, you know, ratted them out. And then they would, he would, Jimmy would go lie down and take a nap. And then he and Stevie <laughs> would take the body and remove the teeth and yeah. bury it. And how do you live with that and not have nightmares for the, I guess you Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I was going to ask you about that culture too. Well, let me ask you this first about his father. Was his father ever convicted of anything or he was no. just. Just... No, I, I believe he he did lose an arm or a partial use of an arm in an accident. He okay. And something to do with trains. So he could never go back in the ring. Okay. Uh, but he was not arrested. I mean, they, they lived in, in this area where what he did was not that abnormal. Well, you know, that's, that's the thing. Yeah. It's one to, especially when it gets a little bit about the woman of Southie also. Um, oh, yeah. It's like yeah. that culture. Now, I'm assuming, like you said, you mentioned that his father said, hey, you know, stay with Jimmy. How much yeah. did his father really know what he was doing? Because apparently, I think he found some guns one time, and then he found some bloody clothes. Let me wash them for you. He knew something yeah. was going on. <laughs> oh, of course he did. Oh, he, he thought when, he thought Jimmy was a hero. Oh, wow. Absolutely a hero. And he was proud. He was far prouder of Kevin working for Whitey Bulger than he was of his two Harvard-educated sons who had oh, no. very successful jobs. And, you know, and Kevin made a lot of money. And brought it home and gave his father, you know, and Whitey Jimmy would come to the house and sit and watch TV with his father and hang around with him in the house. And, you know, it was just the culture. And his father completely went into it. Working for for Jim Belger was the best thing that could happen to a kid. That makes sense of why he took him out of school things. I was wanted to ask you about that too, where I mean seemed Kevin seemed very intelligent. At one point oh, when he yeah. took him out of college or took him out of school to save a couple hundred bucks. What do you think would have happened? I mean, Kevin seems to think if he would just stayed in school, got a degree, did he mention what kind of road he wanted to go down as far as schooling goes or a degree? Like if he did stay with it and like, Yeah, he did have a job to to join a financial group and he really wanted to do it by then he was in too much. He'd already been involved in uh, okay. Was just no way out. There's yeah. no way. So, do your job the best you can and try to protect your family. And he honestly thought he was protecting the community in ways because mm-hmm. the new drug dealers that they pushed out, you know, heroin wasn't allowed, and so they say, and, and things like that. So, yeah. in his mind, I think he had convinced himself that that he was doing what he was doing wasn't so horrible. Yeah. But boy, did he want it over. Really wanted it over. And, you know, he talks about how when he was in prison and he's watching, you know, he finally gave all this evidence. He told them about uh, John Connolly and Stevie Fleming and where all the, uh, he had enough to put Jimmy on the most wanted list mm-hmm. for the crime. And he had confessed to all this and he's in his prison cell and they show the TV, uh, an episode on TV news of Kevin in his, you know, jumpsuit standing there telling them where the bodies were buried. Mm. And it's so many things. Well, this is it. They're going to come after me. Yeah. You know, they'll go to jail. I'll never live. And nobody said a word. And when he got out of prison, people said, well, why are you going to go back to South Boston? He said, I am, because that's where I'm from. And if they want to come after me, I'm right here. Let them take the swing. I'm right here. Wow. I'm not gonna... 
And that's where he's still living all these years later. With it's amazing. amazing. What do, you, what do you think was the initial attraction to somebody like Woody Bolger? And that, I mean, just the neighborhood. I mean, now, especially now, it's a true crime genre. I mean, once in a while, I mean, throughout the years, you know, I've seen a, a gangster. I've seen a mobster, you know, a restaurant or something like that. And I could see, like, ooh, like kind of trying to get a selfie with him from like 30 feet away. You know? Uh, no. I could see that. But the attraction of – I don't want to go over a sit and hang out with a murder with him. But what was that initial attraction? Was that just the culture of the, the Southie it's itself? Funny. Funny you should say that because Kevin would often say he and Jimmy would come into a restaurant. People would send over a bottle of wine or a bottle yeah. of champagne, and they would just want to be around them. And Kevin said, why would anybody want to be around bad guys like me and Jimmy? <laughs> couldn't understand it. And why did he want to be around Jimmy? I think there was almost a, a father image. You know, he was 18 years old when he started to work for him. He stayed with him for 25 years. He never knew that Jimmy was an FBI informant. Yeah. When he heard that on television, when Stevie Plummy, uh, Stevie Plummy announced that and it was on the news, he, he kept, it was the 6 o'clock news, or the 5 o'clock. He waited for the 6 o'clock news, the 11 o'clock news, and he couldn't believe it. And that's when he said, well, that's it. He's a rat. I'm, wow. I'm not with him. And he had just seen him. He was on the, you know, he was on the run, and Kevin had seen him six times prior to that. Yeah. No more. And he knew that Jimmy was going to hear that news, and Jimmy would never want to see him again either. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I maybe you can put a little clarity on, because I'm not really sure, because it like, seems like it'd be two sides of the coin, almost like there's two sides of the coin in, in the neighborhood of where he's an evil killer and, hey, he's protecting the neighborhood. When it comes to being a so-called rat, I had this from what I heard. And obviously, we'll talk a little bit about the movie that came out, uh, Black Mass. What do you thought about that? But when I hear that he was a rat, I, the evidence seems to be he wasn't as far as I know, ratting on his people, he was ratting out the Italian mob to get information to help his crew. Like he didn't rat anybody in his crew, Jimmy anyway, but he just getting information to protect his quote unquote family to get rid of the, uh, the Italian mob. So I would think, well, I don't know why they would be so upset about it. I mean, no, I, I can't think of the name of the guy at the moment. It's, it's eluding me, but there was one particular guy that was working for Whitey. And then they found out that he was about to go to the FBI to give evidence and they killed him. And that happened more than one person. Uh, they, you know, absolutely were were killing people, according to Kevin, that were working for them. And they, you know, they, they turned these people in. Instead of just protecting people that were working for them, they ended up against them. Okay. So his idea of a rat was that, you know, that Jimmy went and told, you know, when he heard from, from um, John Connolly that these people were going to the FBI, then they captured them and killed them in Stevie Flynn's basement. Gotcha. Yeah. More than one time. And that's a rat. And I know the courtroom scene. Did you ever see anything of the courtroom scene? I read about it. Yeah. And the cursing to each other from the stand. Yeah. And there is Jimmy, you know, with leg irons and handcuffs. And and when Kevin comes in and calls him a rat, and he stands up and he's screaming, you're the rat. You're the rat. You want to take it outside? Take it outside. He's in irons. Oh, no. But they just never died. It never died. And I think... It killed. It really upset Kevin terribly to know that that Whitey was also reporting to the FBI. Yeah. It just crushed it. Which, when you think of it, is so bizarre because all these awful things that were happening, and that's the one detail. But you know, a rat is a rat, and Kevin yeah. has also been called a rat, of course, because mm-hmm. of something. Sure. Him. He refuses to believe that. He said he never took down anybody that was innocent. Stevie Fleming was already under indictment. He showed them where the guns were. Um, he told the truth about John Connolly, but he never took any other innocent people or other yeah. people hiding and brought them into the light. And even what you're saying, I mean, do you think 
like from you say Kevin was killing people, but even in the book, um, not that like he enjoyed it. He was doing kind of what he had to do. He felt no emotion either way. But exactly. Whitey, on the other hand, it oh, seemed God. like that's the more of the serial killer. You know, that's, <laughs> that's a little that more of the psychopath where it seems not just enjoyment. If you're going to take a nap upstairs like it just ate a Valium, I think you said, how you guys said yeah. in the book. And then went out for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> he just loved it. He, he Nothing energized him more than a killing. Wow. Uh, that's the serial killer. I can't. I, first of all, Kevin, we're never quite sure exactly who he killed. He took the bodies. He was there when the people were killed. Sure. He could have. He was certainly uh, could have stopped the killing by shooting Whitey Bulger, maybe. Sure. I don't. So um, you know, he never pulled the trigger. So does that make him not? You know, he was in prison for his involvement. For mm-hmm. so he was a yeah. killer. Oh, for sure. Did he ever give you his impression of, or did he see the movie Black Mass? Obviously, I'm sure there's oh, plenty of liberties it. about it. But what did you think about it, and what did Kevin, if if he even saw it? First of all, I saw it with Kevin. Oh, oh no, no. And Kevin did not want to see it in Boston because he says, people will recognize me. So I don't want to see it. So I'll come to your town. I live in Marblehead, a little small town. We have one little theater. So I'll see it there. Oh, God, this is going to be interesting. (laughs) So Actually, my husband and I and Kevin and and, uh, Anna went to the theater. And and Kevin stood out. I mean, he's wearing the black clothes and the black hat. (laughs) Everything about him is is just so non-Marbleheadian. Yeah. And then he's mumbling. He hated the movie. Oh, he hated no. the way he was portrayed. There were different things. Like, I think he was, Johnny Matarano was talking. I don't know. He he said something to Whitey. And, and Kevin said, Whitey would have shot him on the spot. <laughs> or he took peanuts and, and then from a bowl and then put it back. And he said, Whitey was meticulous. Nobody could ever take a bowl of peanuts. And then he entered to him with, you know, with their germs on it. It was nuts that way. He hit one after another after another. <laughs> And the worst part of the whole evening is that the film broke midway through, so they had to have an intermission for about fifteen minutes while they while they fixed the problem yeah. with the projector. And during that whole time, Kevin is swearing and carrying on. <laughs> I can't believe this piece of shit. Look at this. I and I think maybe we should leave Kevin. Now I'm going to see it to the end. By then, the theater had turned around and everybody knew who he was. He oh, they did. Oh no, hated the movie. Hated it. Wow. Yeah, that was a big, big event in Marblehead. Yeah. <laughs> Did people like actually want to interact with him or just kind of they just they knew he was and just left him alone? I think they just wanted to stare at him. Somebody took a picture. I mean, they just couldn't get their eyes off it. This is Kevin Weeks right here. Oh, oh wow. It was, it was ugly. He hated the movie. Hated oh, it. Oh, hysterical. Now, do you remember what the culture, I mean, you, you lived in the area, not in South, I think, even outside. Oh. But do you remember when Whitey was in the Winter Hill Gang rolling around? And did you uh, uh, do you know who they were at the time? No, I honestly didn't. The Winter Hill had made no sense to me. What is that? It was the South Boston Irish mob? It wasn't a, wasn't part of my universe. Okay. And when I started writing the book, I had to educate myself on it and who this, all these Howie Winter and who all these people were. And I got many requests to write other books about some of these people. And um, it was it, it, I had become very knowledgeable on the subject, sure. which I knew zero. Oh, okay. Now, mm-hmm. talk a little bit about his wife, Anna, who obviously was instrumental, even when they were dating, you know, keeping the book together. But yeah, when, well. and from the women of Southie, uh, mm-hmm. Finding Resilience during Whitey Bulger's infamous reign, um, it seemed like, I think she was in the abusive relationship. And then just taking it, you know, from a bird's eye view looking back, and then she starts dating somebody, you know, another, a soldier. That how did it, is this like slim pickings or, you know, well, how did that really go from one? That, that, 
that in Anna's behalf, um, her husband, um, Jackie, was the brother of Kevin Weeks' mistress, Janice. And they lived in an apartment house together. And whenever uh, Jackie would abuse uh, Anna in horrible ways, Kevin would race down to protect her. Oh, God. So he was like her protector. And she, she saw a side of him that was very beautiful. And it was when he came out of prison that he became involved with her, but she was still married to Jackie. And he would go into jail and out of jail. I think in their maybe 20 years of marriage, maybe they spent one full year together. And even then, he'd been faithful to her. But she loved him. She went to visit him in prison every week, got him money. She she truly loved him. And it was only, you know, with Kevin's falling in with Kevin and caring for him that she finally got the courage to divorce him while he was in prison. Jackie uh, then came out and... um, Oh, she told him she, it was a very dramatic scene when she told him that she was going. I think we, I think we portrayed it in Women of Southie when she told mm-hmm. Jackie that she was going to marry Kevin, and how painful that was for both of them. He mm-hmm. he has died since, um, which okay. is very a love story. But she she's a remarkable woman. I mean, this woman is a inner city Boston school teacher full time, mm-hmm. and she teaches you know the really neglected kids in the school system. Tough. It's a tough job, and since they got married. They've had three children. Nice. Age 50, 51, and 52. She delivered three children. Wow. Those kids are like, they must be about nine, eight, and seven now. Yeah. And the love of Kevin's life. Kevin has two sons from a first first marriage. Okay. Mm-hmm. Much. But these three kids, these two boys and this one little girl, I mean, he, he was father that took care of them while she taught every day. Yeah. Um, it, it's such a role reversal. I was I mean, just going to say the I same thing. Exactly. Funny. I mean, Say the words, and I'm thinking I must be crazy uh, <laughs> to have been in this world. But I am. I'm, I'm very, very fond of, of Anna. I loved her story. I loved writing Women of Southie with her, and she, she has many more remarkable stories yet to tell. Oh, and I'm sure. The book has been optioned. I need to become a TV series. So oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's all it's all Anna, an enormously strong, courageous woman. And, all the women there were, and they all seemed to, well, especially Anna, she, I forget the exact quote was, but basically she knew about Whitey. He's like, I know yep. she did some horrible things, but they all seemed to think, um, but if he actually stayed there, mm-hmm. he actually would have made the neighborhood better. I think, I, I think there was more about, you know, keeping the hard drugs off the street like they did. Cause mm-hmm. there's, again, it's that two sides of the coin where, have you ever heard of the UFC, the ultimate fighting championship, that martial arts stuff on TV? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Dana White, you know, the president now, he was like a multi, 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 you know, almost a billionaire. He had interaction with Kevin, you know, mm-hmm. on the streets. We had a boxing gym and Kevin's like, oh, you give us money and probably heard the famous story about it. So there's yeah. that side, people who are getting extorted. But then the other side of, no, we love those people. They kept the riffraff out. So it's kind of like. What road do you go down? It seemed like, oh, yeah. but it was, the, yeah, they point to the statistics that after Whitey left, uh, went on the run, that there was a range of, of teenage suicides from drug addiction oh, and wow. all the things that had never happened during his reign. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it, it's hard to hard to put it all in perspective. But yeah. Out there. And you know, I think in the book too, um, Anna Weeks, Anna um, uh, Kevin's Kevin's sister, Anna Weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Karen Weeks, who was just about two years younger than him, and is definitely very much Kevin. I mean, she is one. <laughs> you do not, you do not boss her around at all. And she was the last one to come out of that family, and she suffered the most of all oh, of them. No. She's put her life together quite well, which she was also something about the father, I guess. But all these kids, 
had incredible IQs. I mean, Karen is positively brilliant. And Kevin, believe me, if, if I say something and it's not exactly what I said the day before, he'll remember. Oh. <laughs> is, I think a, a smart killer, smart criminal, is especially dangerous. Oh, I can and imagine. Jimmy yeah. and Kevin, I think, had IQs off the wall. Mm. Now, I think, talk about the strength of these women. Um, mm-hmm. I thought I heard you say, it might have been a lecture, I think, that, uh, that you spoke on that I saw on YouTube uh, recently. The book was initially going to be about just almost like the culture there of Southie, mm-hmm. but after mm-hmm. talking to these women, you know, I got to yeah. talk about these women and just in the strength of it. Yeah. And especially, um, I mean, there's one story. Uh, uh, who was it? I don't think it was, I don't think it was Elaine or Tori's, I think Nancy Young, I believe it was. Oh, Nancy's unbelievable. Where just the strength of, I think, what, a friend or a boyfriend or family member, you know, found hanging out of the closet and everyone I love died or suicide. I mean. It's heartbreaking. And yet if you met Nancy, she's so strong and, and full of life and full of love for her family. Mm. And that's all of those women, I, I, they blew me away. I wish I had more time to write about them. I really do. Each one was worthy of our own. Oh, yeah. Well, and I mean, they, they... yeah. And for remember, for the chapters of the book, you know, I won't go into you know, too much of details, but maybe if you just speak, I'll just mention a couple of names and just the first few things that come to mind. Now, you just mentioned Nancy Young. Um, what about Tori Donlin? What comes to your mind when oh, I say her name? God. Enormous strength and conviction. And she is raising an amazing daughter. And you know she's from that whole family of the you know the great the grandmother and I, I lived at twelve thirteen. Kids I say, I yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh God! I mean they're like legendary. I went to the grandmother's funeral and I waited I must have been three hours in line before I could even wow. get in uh, to view the body. I mean it was they're amazing. But Tori is so so strong and and her grandmother always you know she was in the navy and. And she she went into the Navy because she was lying in bed waiting for her drug uh, person to you know arrive at the house with her drugs. Mm-hmm. And um, she turns the TV on and she hears this thing, you know, from the Navy, we want you. So she writes the number down, calls them. <laughs> and they actually got to her before the drug dealer. And before she knows it, oh, wow. she's on a destroyer, you know, in the Pacific. I, oh, and, wow. and, and, Completely stoned, completely drugged out, and gets pregnant while she's there. Uh, and her grandmother, she's so ashamed to tell her grandmother, and her grandmother says, you don't need a man. We'll raise this baby. And and she literally came home, and from the moment she found out she was pregnant and dismissed from the Navy, she never touched a drug again. Oh, wow. It's a wonderful job. She's raising a wonderful daughter, and she's just strength. Just I, I don't yeah. know who can be dealt that kind of life and, and, and was so enormously strong. I love her. And what about her, her mom, Elaine? Oh, my God. Elaine, Elaine McGuire Donlin. I mean, she's a McGuire, which makes the oldest of all the McGuires. Okay. Nobody messed with her. Nobody. <laughs> and uh, she's still, uh, she's fighting all the, you know, she's just kind of well, very strong with her family, but you don't want to be on her bad side. And she loves her three daughters to the utmost and had a wonderful marriage. She died and it was very sad. But she really, you know... I don't like quite sure that she had tremendous belief in Whitey and that she, mm-hmm. you know, she saw a lot, but she was terribly heartbroken that she and people like her can no longer afford to live in Southie. Yeah. That, you know, all these yuppies, all these wealthy younger people have come in and that she feels like she's been exiled. Uh, okay. The only place she really wants to live is Southie. Mm-hmm. So she goes back and, you know, maybe has her hair done there, meets her friends, mm-hmm. oh. whatever. But she's um, a lovely lady. And, Wonderful. Uh, if you met her, you'd be 
you, you just wouldn't never be able to do that. <laughs> and, something. Yeah. And how about Marie, Marie Falcone? Marie, I felt very sad because she died before the book came out. Mm. And um, she did so much for the children of Southie. She was involved in so many organizations to help kids. And she was like a mother to everybody. And uh, her daughter died very tragically uh, at the hands of her boyfriend, murdered. And uh, it, it, she, again, her life, you hear all the things that happened to these women, you know, your, your, your daughter or your granddaughter. And, and yet she was still there to raise her grandson. When her daughter was murdered, she raised oh. this child all on her own uh, with her boyfriend, the man in her life. And um, he be- graduated college and did amazing things. Mm-hmm. And that's all because of Marie. Wow. And she was with no money and just tremendous perseverance. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. I'm and glad you're talking about these women because I just truly love them. Oh, for sure. I mean, she definitely have a big impact on you and for anybody who, who has yeah. read the book. Um, yeah. And especially they talk about their faith also. And yes, it's okay. weird in, you know, you have this Irish Catholic, like half of my family's yeah. Irish, other half's Italian. Okay. Um, yeah. And you always hear about Irish coming through the Roman Catholic faith. But you hear stories from like the women who they hold on to it, like almost with all their strength and it really yeah. helped them through it. But yeah. then on the other side, it's like, like the gangster aspect of it. Everybody yeah. calls himself a Catholic. You know, Tony Soprano calls himself a Catholic. It's like, what is it you think with the Boston area that, you know, I've been studying and teaching biblical theology for years. Pretty sure extortion oh. is not part of Jesus's plan. You know, <laughs> like one aspect of, that they just I call know. themselves, and on the other hand, they're holding under the faith with dear strength. What do you think it is? is it about? Like, like the culture and gangsters, where you know, I don't think you really read the Bible, but you know, but they're trying to live it. And I mean, Anna, I don't think she's ever missed a Sunday mass. Uh-huh. Uh, she's constantly going to different weekly things. She's on her knees, lighting candles. Oh, all the- wonderful very faithful the strength of, of her religion is and you know, they know about the horrible things that happen with the priests and they're all the first ones to talk about that sure they're, this religion sustains them it's part yeah. of out of the selfie culture it, it's just part of who they are oh, that's other, wonderful. you know it's, it's it's like in the other side of the corner the gangsters who are still living that life you know, yep. and living in murder, and yep. but they still say, I you know they they'll still say a prayer to this saint, this or that saint. Oh, well, you got to read a little more. <laughs> Keep reading. <laughs> right. When Anna would say that, you know, they get out and she they'd get drunk and do horrible things, you know, on Saturday night. But you knew where you'd find them on Sunday. They would be yeah. Yeah. In forever. And Anna herself stopped drinking. I think at age twenty. That was it. No oh wow! Drinking. Wow. It, many awful episodes and to this day she'll never take a drink kevin barely drinks you know whitey never wanted his guys to drink he didn't want them to get into bar fights uh he didn't want to lose them that way so yeah. he's very strong. he may have a beer mm-hmm. but that's not all you can have you know oh it, wonderful <laughs> no i think it was a when we you know we contact each other i reached out to you online i guess a couple of years ago now where you know you know through you and i got kevin's autograph for the book and and, and yours um, are, you, are you still in contact? Obviously, you saw the movie together. Are you guys still in touch with each other oh, to this yeah. day? Yeah, Kevin and I are writing a we started it during. Um, we actually managed to get almost two books done during um, oh. COVID. But <laughs> right. Kevin started a book. It's called The Jewel Thief, and you know there were so many stories that he couldn't tell. You know, when we were writing his book, and there were things that I'm not saying there were things that he did, but things that he heard about. He knew so much about crime, mm-hmm. so we said, "Let's write a book of fiction." And put it together. And so we have. We're calling it the Jewel Thief, where I would say 85 to 90 percent through with it. Oh, and it's wonderful. To write it with him now because it's not his story. Sure. He's not terribly sensitive about it. 
and he, you know, he 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 gives me material that I can't even believe. Sure. How you take a body apart after it? Oh, just trying to learn <laughs> an education. So I love. I really enjoy writing with him uh, right now. And you know, I do have a little bit link um, to prison and the idea that a cousin of mine. Uh, when he was 18 years old and a senior at Brookline High School, killed a woman mm. and 13 years in prison. And I'm writing a family memoir now about that incident. So I went to visit him many times. And, you know, he going into a prison was nothing terrifying to me. And, mm. you know, it wasn't. So I almost had that little bit of background sure. about my cousin. And was he guilty? And that someone else committed the crime? We were never quite sure. But it was front page news. I mean, this was a an 18-year-old Jewish white rich kid and it was during the time when um old smoky was still going <laughs> and uh you know he could possibly be executed for yeah. this the vote oh. just it was a different time so i knew a little bit about crime but not any anywhere near what i was about to learn oh sure is, is there uh is there anything else that you're working on that we can you can talk about now or that you're not allowed to talk about <laughs> well i'm talking about the jewel thief because uh -huh. i'm excited I think it's great. Yeah. And uh, the family story that I'm writing, which is The Curse of the Blumenthal's, um, is um, right now it's in the hands of a copy editor. So we'll see what happens with that one. Nice. And, um, you know, it's it's a family story. And I've written so many stories about, you know, Lou Gossett Jr. I did his biography and, of course, Kevin's and uh, a couple of others. So it was kind of interesting to turn the, the light on my own family. No. And I think everybody that wants to write a family story will find a lot of things that you didn't know existed. You didn't oh, yeah. know. It's really unraveling a lot to me. It also involves a family accident, which six members of my family were killed by a drunk driver oh. and uh, how alcoholism, you know, affected my family in particular with um, uh, at the time during um, prohibition and relatives of mine that were involved in that. But anyhow, it, it's, mm -hmm. I'm, and I'm, my friendship with Kevin will go beyond, you know, the oh, Jewish. Yeah. Oh, that's and wonderful. Andrew and I are, you know, we're very excited about the option for women of Southie. Of course, the actor strike did not help us. Yeah, act <laughs> I'm sure. And we're really hoping that there's been a lot of interest in it, you know, stories about women and everything. And yeah. um, we're excited about that. Oh, so I'm sure. It's all good. Now, where can everybody talk about the Women of Southie, the, the book Brutal? Where can everybody pick up these books? Do oh, you have a website? I mean, I'm sure Amazon, but any other websites yeah, that we can? Yeah. No, uh, Brutal is very much available on Amazon.com, as is the Women of Southie um, on Amazon.com. And, and most of my books are. I also do have a you know, website, www.phyllisharris.com, and that, that leads all these. But, um, you know, it's all good. Um, you know, it's, I, it's awful to be writing stories about bad people and say it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, Kiki, um, the woman from the Women of Onassis, mm -hmm. now um, redoing her book and getting it back out. And that, oh, that's wonderful. been a lot that's happened to her since her life with Jackie Kennedy. So uh, I can imagine. It's it's amazing. I mean, I'm sure you didn't know at the time, but now we're living in this true crime genre. Yeah, you know, it's like a whole, a whole new audience of people now. Yeah. <laughs> true crime i never read a true crime book yeah and not, you know or on the shelves mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's your life and i can understand why yeah it's exactly never-ending source of crime and people yeah. are so much more interested in stories about crime than they are you know about bad men than they are about good men it's yeah. sad to say, but it's true it's yeah any of two sides i mean one side the, 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 like for my podcast obviously you know i have people call me from prison for the show but my, yes. my following is like two sides yeah you got those who are not really rooting for the serial killer, but more can relate to that side of the fence. But the other side are p people who are involved with the police. 
you know, yes. for investigating. They want to go to school and, and learn about forensics. And so it's like it covers the whole range with, with true crime and not just, you know, you know, a bunch of crazy people. But we get them too, you know. <laughs> but, I'm convinced that on prison walls uh, has been inscribed in, in some kind of lettering, uh, want your book written, call Phyllis with my phone. Yeah. <laughs> I got a phone call. I can't even begin to tell you. I had a couple of them even come visit me once they got out. But I think at this point I'm through with that. Oh, <laughs> so that's great. Raise my name. Raise my name. I think a better way to end a podcast than that. That's <laughs> so, so nice talking to you, Keith. Really I, oh, thank you so much for your time. It was really, really, uh, it was a blessing to me. I'm sure everybody listening to, uh, to have you call and give you a few Love moments you. of your time. I'm grateful for your interest. Thank you so much. Great. You take care. Thank you. Bye, Keith. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed talking to her. Um, I just found it fascinating. Uh, And I'm definitely, you know, looks like they're going to be redoing uh, or, you know, writing another book. Um, I'm I'm just so – I can't wait to to read that. (laughs) I can't wait. I mean, it's going to be like a – one's going to be a fictional book. Um, But, man, when you – and even talk, if you listen to the podcast I recently did with Nico, where his fascination is with reading books from authors who are killers, um, you really get inside the mind. And not that a, uh, a great author with an imagination who's never killed anybody can't write a great book, but the feeling behind it, the motivation behind it, it's just a little different. So I'm very curious to, uh, to, to check out their new book when it comes out. Um, again, it's, it's fictional, but... Um, I'm sure he's going to be pulling from a lot of personal experience. Uh, so I hope you uh, uh, will check that out if we have them back on. Who knows? Maybe we can get her and Kevin back on if it goes really well. Uh, so fingers crossed. Well, again, thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to hop over to my new YouTube channel. Give that a good subscribe. We're almost at about 800 followers, so we're going to kick that up a little notch. Uh, follow me on all my social media pages, all that good stuff. And until next time, see ya. <laughs>